Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am with Ksenia Konishkova. Ksenia is a PhD student in the Computer Vision Lab at EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Ksenia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to meet you today. <laughs> Absolutely. Great to meet you as well. Uh, so why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in computer vision and machine learning, artificial intelligence? Okay, so it probably all started with my master's degree when I just heard this cool name, machine learning. Okay. And I had uh, very little idea what it is all about, but uh-huh. it sounded exciting. And then I learned <laughs> that you can actually recognize cats in the pictures if you use machine learning. And then I thought, great, that's a uh-huh. <laughs> thing for me. No, I'm Cat kidding. recognition. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't the real motivation, but yeah, it just sounds fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, it sounded like a fun field to be, and uh, it was probably a little bit before it became so popular and so uh-huh. famous, but uh, I was lucky to be there kind of at the beginning. So I joined the program, program in uh, machine learning and algorithms in the University of Helsinki. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, I went uh, for my PhD program in Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, at Ecole Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne. Mm-hmm. And I joined the computer vision lab with Pascal Four, who is famous in the computer vision community. Mm-hmm. But as you know, today, computer vision very much depends on machine learning so it was a great match to combine these two fields that interest me okay awesome awesome and you're here at nips uh sharing some of the work you're doing some of your research uh can you tell me a little bit about that Mm -hmm. yes sure so uh, I'm working in the field that is called active learning. Okay. So the basic idea is that normally in the traditional machine learning, we have a lot of training data, which we collect from human experts. Mm-hmm. And then uh, pr- they provide us with the labels for this data when we're doing the supervised machine learning. Mm-hmm. And having this huge annotated corpus of data, we can train a model, which will help us to predict for the new coming data what labels we assign. Either mm-hmm. it's a classification or regression task. Mm-hmm. The problem that we're dealing with is that we don't have this training data available and we're trying to select the data in the optimal way so that if we annotate it, we can learn the machine learning model as quickly as possible. Mm. So the idea is to reduce human annotation efforts and at the same time achieve a similar quality of performance of the machine learning algorithms. Mm. And uh, what I'm doing, uh, I'm presenting the work that is called Learning Active Learning from Data. Okay. So we're going even one step further. And instead of trying to construct some specific algorithm that would select data for us, we're trying to learn uh, an algorithm from the previous examples of active learning uh, uh, algorithms runs. Okay. So, for example, the very com- very popular active learning algorithm is called uncertainty sampling. In this case, we have, for example, suppose we have 10 uh, data points that are labeled for us. It's mm-hmm. very little and we probably cannot predict much based on right. them. But we can still have a very rough idea of how the model should be. Mm-hmm. And then we can construct, for example, the decision hyperplane. And then we will select points that lie closest to the decision boundary. And we would think that as the model is the most uncertain right now about these points, if we annotate this kind of points, they would help to train a better model in the future. 
So instead of labeling the data just uniformly at random from the very big corpus, we select the data that would help the model the, the most. Mm. And uh, this kind of uh, algorithms, like I mentioned, uncertainty sampling, and there are many other ones that were introduced uh, in the literature. The problem is that uh, on different applications, they're all competing. Some of them are doing better in this scenario, some are doing better in that scenario. Okay. And for example, in my previous work, I worked on specific algorithms to work with images. So mm -hmm. to take the advantage of the structure and the, some smoothness assumptions of the images to annotate data. But then uh, there is nothing principled there, and we don't know which of the algorithms would actually perform the best a priori. So we have to okay. test them, and this is all uh, human annotation cost. So my okay. idea is that we have some annotated data sets already, mm -hmm. and then if we simulate the runs of this uh, data collection process, we can actually see what kind of points led to a good behavior of active learning algorithm, and which points uh, didn't improve the quality much. And mm. then we can try to predict in the future what kind of points should be selected. So in particular, I'm dealing with a situation where I just generate a lot of data uh, myself, just like some synthetic data sets of very simple shapes, but they still have uh, a lot of variability of them. Some, In some cases, if I deal with uh, binary classification, sometimes the classes overlap a lot, sometimes mm -hmm. they're easily separable. And they're two-dimensional shapes? or Yes, right now it's just very simple. We can okay. do it with a very kind of cheap procedure with just two-dimensional data. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we run uh, active learning on them, just kind of this data collection. And then we look at the state of the classifier, how the classifier was trained, and the data points. And we look how much adding each kind of data point reduced the classification error for us. Hmm. So, for example, we label two data points, we train a model, we look at what kind of error this model resulted in, as mm -hmm. we know all the ground truth as this is a simulated data. Mm -hmm. Then we try to select one uh, more data point and we get three points. Mm -hmm. Now on these three points we can learn a new model and it results in a new error. And now we can look at the difference between the error of the model with two points and error of the model with three points. Mm -hmm. And this difference would uh, show us how much adding this third data point helped the model. Mm -hmm. And so now as we... Uh, uh, as we go on in training, we memorize the states of the classifier. For example, I'm dealing with something very simple like random forest classification. I can okay. look at what was the depth of the tree, what was the variance of the forest, what was the cross-validated accuracy. And then we look at the data points, for example, what was the probability to belong to a certain class for a certain point. And we have how much in this situation, this particular data point reduced the error. So based on this data, after we collect it for all synthetic data sets, we can train a regressor that will predict in the future based on the state of the classifier and given data points from the pool of unlabeled data, which of them would result in the highest reduction in error. And this is the sample mm. that we select to be annotated. Okay. And we all started with uh, this very simple two-dimensional data. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, the easiest is to train it on the similar kind of data. And this mm -hmm. is our simplest scenario. Then we try to complicate it more and more. For example, we deal with the XOR-like problems. When we with have a kind problems? of... Uh, so we have a classification where the data is in the form of checkerboard. 
Okay. Can you imagine? So we have like positive class, negative class, positive ah, class, okay. negative class. So they're kind of repeating in the checkerboard style. Okay. And this kind of uh, data sets are more tricky for machine learning usually, and active learning is not an exception. Mm -hmm. And if we apply uh, the very famous and very popular uncertainty sampling algorithm mm -hmm. that is uh, often difficult to outperform in normal situations, in this case it would perform even worse than random because it is confused by this checkerboard uh, struct structure. And is the, is the difficulty with this structure because the regions are non-contiguous or is it something yes. else? The thing is that, for example, if we imagine the checkerboard just two by two, so mm -hmm. we have, uh, uh, suppose we have red class on the top uh, left, then blue class on the top right, mm -hmm. and then blue class again on the bottom left and red class on mm -hmm. the uh, bottom right. Suppose that we selected one sample from the upper red class and one sample from the upper blue class as mm -hmm. our initial examples, mm -hmm. then we construct some kind of decision boundary and what uncertainty sampling would do it would try to refine this boundary and would it would take a very long time to discover that there are two other regions of these classes that are in completely different order mm -hmm. so what uncertainty sampling is good at is it's a refining boundary when we already have some reasonable approximation of this boundary Okay. And uh, this can be a problem in many real data sets when mm -hmm. uh, one class can be represented by some several modalities of uh, examples. Okay. And so in this case, we show that then this very popular algorithm performs worse than just random sampling. Mm -hmm. By random sampling, I mean that we just select data at random and then we label everything. So it's uh, uh, definitely not a very efficient strategy. But in this case, it does better than uncertainty sampling. However, if we learn the strategy from the previous examples of this active learning runs, it uh, figures out that it shouldn't follow the strategy of refining the boundary. Mm -hmm. And for example, in this case, what it seems that it learns is that when the classifier is uncertain, it's better not to uh, trust it at all, not to follow any of the predictions of the classifier, but instead just do some random exploration in the beginning mm -hmm. until we collect enough data from which... Uh, on which we can train a better classifier. Okay. And then we would be able to refine the boundary that would be more efficient. Hmm. And, and so this mm -hmm. this method doesn't involve it doesn't involve trying to identify data points that are close to your decision boundary. Um, no, no, not anymore. Not okay. anymore. Yeah, so it has the uh, like as a feature, like uh, as we have the regressor, it has some features as an input, mm -hmm. and some of them are features of the classifier that just characterize how certain our classifier is, like how uh, how good is cross-validated accuracy, for example, mm -hmm. and then some features they characterize the data points, and mm -hmm. one of the features could be the distance to the boundary, but it can also include some other features. For example, we can look at the distance to the other labeled points or distance to the unlabeled points. For mm -hmm. example, it can characterize for us if the point is an outlier or if it lies in the dense region of the feature space. Okay. So it includes uh, many more features, and uh, including the distance to the boundary. Mm -hmm. But then if I uh, 
uh, if I study how much each of these features influences the decision of the regressor, the decision of which point to select by the active learning strategy, the distance to the boundary is not the first and most important criteria. Mm -hmm. It comes maybe like the fourth. And the first one was actually the certainty, the, the confidence of the classifier. So mm -hmm. the strategy is adaptive uh, as the active learning progresses and we collect more and more data, the classifier becomes more and more confident and the strategy adapts accordingly. Mm. And uh, yeah, next we uh, try to test uh, this kind of algorithm that was learned from the data on the real data sets mm -hmm. that are very different from these synthetic examples. In the okay. synthetic examples, we just had this two by two, uh, uh, two dimensional features uh, for the data points, right, right. but you cannot go very far with it and probably yeah. it doesn't sound like a very exciting problem <laughs> in machine learning. <laughs> it definitely won't help us to classify cats. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So next we move to the real data sets okay. and I'm dealing, um, I'm a part of Human Brain Project okay. that is a very big European project with a huge funding trying to address uh, the problem of understanding how human brain functions mm -hmm. and there are many many researchers who work on it and very, from very different perspectives, mm -hmm. there are biologists, neuroscientists, there are physicists and mm -hmm. all kind of people. And so I'm also part of this project as trying to understand brain imaging. Okay. For example, we're dealing with uh, electron microscopy scans of uh, red tissue, mm -hmm. uh, of red brain tissue, and we're trying to segment some cellular structures in it. For example, we're on the cellular resolution and we can see the mitochondria, the right. synapses between neurons, we can identify uh, membranes or other kinds of things. The other application in which I'm interested is having MRI scans of the brain and try mm -hmm. to segment uh, uh, a brain tumor of uh, different types. Okay. And uh, then uh, I apply the same kind of strategy that uh, I learned on the synthetic data to this real data sets of much higher dimensionality, okay. uh, much uh, higher complexity. And also I have a very different data set, for example, for detecting credit card fraud transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have uh, transactions from the bank for which we know that 99% of them are normal transactions and then we have around 1% or even less of uh, fraud transactions uh -huh. and it's also a very laborious task to annotate this kind of data because you need to annotate like thousands of data points before you start having only a dozen of examples of fraud mm -hmm. and this is only humans they can do it and the same goes of course for this biomedical imaging like as a person who is not into biology or neuroscience it is a very hard task to uh, understand what is going on right. and the time of these people is quite expensive and we would better want them spend it on something more intelligent rather than annotating data for <laughs> right. our algorithms. Right. So these are the applications where active learning is uh, the most interesting in cases when only very specialized and educated uh, humans can mm -hmm. annotate data for us. And in this case, we also apply the same kind of strategy that we learned from synthetic data. And surprisingly, it works even in these cases. It can generalize to mm -hmm. very different data sets. And uh, how uh, 
we understand it is that it learns a very general knowledge about active learning. For example, the rule such as when the classifier is uncertain, do random exploration, mm-hmm. and when classifier is rather certain, refine the boundary. This mm-hmm. should hold no matter how uh, the data set looks like, and it would hold in the case of this simple two-dimensional data in the case of very complex electron microscopy imaging data. Mm-hmm. And so is the idea, you know, when you take a step back and think about this in the context of uh, a system like the imaging data, mm-hmm. uh, is the idea that you, you know, how does this, how does this unfold in practice? Like a, mm-hmm. you, uh, you have some minimal set of training data and then you're envisioning that you would generate uh, some other set of data and kind of send it out for annotation or okay i see so okay in our example for example let's talk about this electron microscopy segmenting uh, cellular structures Mm -hmm. how we imagine it is that the user has a stack of uh, tissue so it's actually not a real image it's a three-dimensional image so it's kind of a cube uh, and in whatever direction we look at it we can cut it in all directions Mm -hmm. and we'll get the images of how the tissue looked like that and so what we ask at the beginning we ask the user to kind of have take a brush in some program and indicate here is like some part of mitochondria and here is a part of background Mm-hmm. And then based on this, our model would uh, train some initial classifier, very, very, very rough one that would mm-hmm. just like say, okay, mitochondria, for example, they're darker than background on average. Right. So let's just use this as discriminative feature. Mm-hmm. It would train such a model and then there will be some kind of grayish part in the tissue. And it would think that classifier would think, hmm, I'm not sure what it uh, belongs to. Does it belong to mitochondria or does it belong mm-hmm. to the background? And then uh, the active learning would select this as the, some special part in the tissue which we want to be annotated mm-hmm. and then it brings the user to this part of the tissue and kind of highlights this area in which we would like to get more labels and ask the user please get take mm-hmm. a brush again and indicate whether this particular error is background or if this okay. particular error is a mitochondria and then the user annotates again and then the procedure iterates uh, mm-hmm. until we're satisfied with the results or until some budget of time is reached or something mm-hmm. of the type and do you have that whole system running at this point end to end or are you more modeling it from the data itself so right now i was mostly working just for, with from the data okay. so we already have the labeled data and we simulate this active learning procedure because in this case we can of course test many strategies we can study how different parameters influence our algorithms mm-hmm. we can compare to many strategies but uh, we actually have students the master student who is working on putting it into a plugin that the okay. neuro scientist would use and uh, uh, I actually know some people who work in neuroscience and I know one girl whose PhD topic is mostly uh, identifying mitochondria and trying Mm -hmm. to understand how they influence the neural diseases uh, in the human brain Mm -hmm. and what she does uh, as a big part of her PhD work she is just she has to annotate this data manually (laughs) and I believe that she's very uh, knowledgeable and she can do Mm -hmm. something more useful at that time if we can provide her with this plugin that only with uh, I don't know, 100 samples can provide the same quality of classification as with 10,000 samples, for example. So in some cases we can reduce the annotation effort like very significantly. Hmm. Uh, So is is that 
you know, going from 10,000 required samples to 100, is that representative of the kind of results you've seen for different uh, scenarios? Uh, you mean across different applications? Right. Okay, it depends on the application, how much active learning can actually improve our results. Okay. Yeah, so in some cases we can uh, get a very dramatic decrease uh, in the annotation uh, time. Mm -hmm. In some cases uh, it's not that much, but in any case we're reaching the same quality faster and we can stop the procedure at any time when we reach the budget of time and the classifier that we constructed at that point of time would be better than what we would construct if we just sample points at random. Hmm. The other thing that we can look at is how uh, human-friendly this kind of uh, annotation uh, uh, mm -hmm. environment is. For example, uh, uh, in my previous work, I worked particularly for images, and I tried to design a particular strategy for the 3D uh, imaging stacks. Mm -hmm. And in this case, what we were saying is that it is very cumbersome if we have to annotate uh, the stack just kind of pixel by pixel. Mm -hmm. Suppose that you are brought like in some part of the stack and ask to annotate what is here, then you brought to some other place, you asked to annotate something there and some right, other and some right. other, and it can actually take quite a lot of time just because of this context switches and you have to understand what is going on and like uh, it's not so trivial to understand uh, how these neurons connect with mm -hmm. each other, for example. So one thing that we're looking at, we're trying to find some optimal cuts in this 3D plane. So we're just mm. cutting them in various directions and we're projecting data on this direction, uh, on these planes, on these cuts, and we're trying to annotate some batches of samples instead of asking to annotate one by one, mm -hmm. uh, whatever the samples are. Mm. You can try to think so of it... kind of like maximum uncertainty cuts or something? In, in like a that. sense, yeah. So we had some some uncertainty measure that wasn't uh, like uh, maybe. Uh, not a standard one, but something special for the images. But then, yeah, mm -hmm. we're trying to find a cut with a maximum uh, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there are other ways uh, to work in this direction. So in as I see it in active learning, there are these two components. One of them is we want to design an algorithm that would select the best possible sample. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we should still remember that there will be humans who annotate data for us. So we should make it as convenient and as easy for humans to label the data. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, another thing that I've been working on uh, also in this direction is uh, uh, getting labeled data for object detection. So mm -hmm. the problem is very different. We just like want to localize objects in images, like I don't know, the bottle, the TV screen, a human, mm -hmm. these kind of things. And uh, there are various, uh, and for this we need bounding box annotation. So we need mm -hmm. someone to draw a bounding box right. around every object and from this we train. And uh, there are various ways how we can collect it. We can ask the humans to draw it manually. Mm -hmm. This kind of this is the normal way of doing it. But on the other hand, we already have some kind of detectors that may be not as strong as we would like them to be. Right. But we can already try to use the output of these detectors and show them, show it to the users, mm -hmm. and ask the users to correct for the mistakes. Mm. And this is. And are we talking about um, mistakes in terms of identifying the bounding boxes mm -hmm. or labeling what's in the bounding boxes or uh, both? Okay, so now I'm talking about uh, identifying the location of the bounding box. Okay. Because in this scenario, we simplify the problem and we say that we already have image uh, level annotations. Mm -hmm. So we already know that there is a bottle in this image, there okay. is a door in this image, and now we want to know where this door is. 
Okay. So we split the problem in two separate ones and we deal with the second one where we want hmm. to get the coordinates of these uh, bounding boxes. Okay. And in this case, on the one hand, if we ask humans to draw an object, it is very fast. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is not very fast. It takes uh, in the very... In kind of in the standard protocols, it might take up to 35 seconds to mm-hmm. get uh, one bounding box per image, okay. and we need uh, thousands of them for every class. Right. So it results like in years and years of uh, human work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, if we ask the users to verify the prediction of the classifier, mm-hmm. it can be very fast. It takes like around two seconds, for example, mm-hmm. just to say yes or no if it is a correct uh, identification of the object, mm-hmm. but it is not guaranteed to provide a bounding box that we would like to get. Mm-hmm. So if the user answers no, we have to repeat the procedure again and we have to ask the user again where the box was. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do in this work, we're trying to balance between these two modalities of data annotation and trying to decide in what situations it's better to ask uh, to draw a bounding box that is expensive but guaranteed to produce uh, a label mm-hmm. and with which situations it's easier to to verify uh, the detection uh, detected proposals and it will result uh, in a positively verified uh, box quicker. And is the methodology the same uh, for this project as mm-hmm. the one you previously described? No, it's not exactly the same. Okay. Uh, but uh, what unifies them it's, is that we're still dealing with the problem of reducing human efforts, right. just approaching it from the other direction. So one direction is select what to annotate, and the other direction is select how to annotate. So mm. what I believe is that yeah. both of them would be important. And if we just deal with one of them, uh, we can get some good results on paper on, kind mm-hmm. of on some simulations. But in practice, both of these directions would be important. Right. Interesting. I'm curious about how the system would go about directing the annotator to a specific area. Meaning you have mm-hmm. these, you have these data points that are are annotated what is it asking for is it asking for like some coordinate does it know mm-hmm. like coordinates of uncertainty or does uh-huh, it know something else okay so i didn't go into details of the protocol but actually okay. how we start the uh, the task is to segment something to segment mitochondrias okay. and we started from over segmenting images so we use something that is called sleek super pixels or sleek super voxels so okay. the idea is that it is unsupervised method that can provide uh, uh, segmentation of the image of the very fine fine grain mm-hmm. Uh, that is not uh, reflecting actually the boundaries of the object, but they're uniform, more or less. Mm-hmm. So we get like uh, very small se- segments in the images that are all more or less uniform in their appearance. And okay. uh, every object would compose, would consist, for example, of hundreds of such objects of, of these super voxels or super pixels. Mm-hmm. And uh, then what uh, the algorithm, the active learning algorithm identifies, it selects which super voxel is the most uncertain. And, and are then, the super voxels, they're all uniform in shape and more size? More or less, yes. Uh, this is the property of the sleek super voxels, is that they're more or less uniform and of a shape that is close to spherical or circular depending if it's uh, 3D or 2D stacks. And so you can have multiple adjacent super voxels that are the same value, essentially the same color or... 
Yes, yes. So it's still, even if there is a very uniform part of the image, it would still try to divide it in right. some uh, way so that they're still kept of more or less the same size and okay. uh, the same shape. Okay. It depends on the parameters, how you specify. It's, it's unsupervised algorithm, but you need okay. to uh, identify how compact you want them to be, how smooth you want them to be, mm -hmm. these kind of things. Okay. But what we're trying to do is like to have them roughly circular, small objects. Okay, and, and are they overlapping? No, they're not overlapping. Okay. So it is just kind of assignment of every pixel of the object to a super pixel. Okay. So we call they're called super pixels because they consist of uh, multiple pixels. Right. Or super voxels, the same for voxels. Okay. And then what uh, active learning does, it selects a super voxel or super pixel that needs mm -hmm. to be annotated in this case. Okay. Or in case of uh, this identifying the planes, it just identifies the area with several uh, uh, super voxels that are uncertain. So in okay. this case, it would be just as if we have an image and then we highlight some kind of round error saying that we are interested in annotations mm -hmm. there. Okay. Yeah. And right. there we're also suggesting that if the objects are big enough, like mitochondria are rather big and the selected area that we want the user to annotate is small, we can approximate it like just with two clicks of the mouse, just identifying the boundary of mitochondria if it is in the image. So it makes mm. it even faster like this. Okay. So this is another example of working on this other direction of how convenient it is for user to annotate mm -hmm. the data, combined uh, together with the algorithm that selects what to annotate. Okay. And so if the presumably if your if the user task is to then identify whether the boundary is in the image mm -hmm. or in the the voxel super voxel, mm -hmm. then you can kind of go from there to multiple super voxels with boundaries and determine which is where the mitochondria is. Is that what you're saying? Mm. So how it looks like is that suppose we have a circle mm -hmm. that overlaps the mitochondria a bit, but because mm -hmm. mitochondria is rather big compared to the size of the circle, right. the boundary of mitochondria is more or less uh, just a line. Yeah. And we can ask the user to draw this line with two clicks and to identify on which side the uh, the mitochondria is. Right. And then it would uh, uh, we are able from this line we are able to go towards the assignment of super voxels to particular classes so ah, when okay. we have so this just line, that one yeah. assignment in this one super voxel can tell you a yeah. whole you can About kind of project the whole where the area. mitochondria is exactly yeah okay yeah. interesting so interesting um well this is really fascinating work i appreciate you Thank taking you. the time to to share it with us where can folks learn more about uh your research do you have a, a website up on? Uh, yes, I have a website uh, that is xenia.konishkova.com okay. and uh, I try to keep it more or less updated about the recent research that I'm doing. For example, what I mentioned today, the work about bounding boxes, I just finished uh, an internship last uh, Friday at Google Research in Zurich okay. and this is a project that we were working on okay. and uh, it's soon uh, to be there and uh, okay. before it is uh, going to appear anywhere else. Awesome, awesome. So, well, thank you once again. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Cassinia or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelai.com slash talk slash 116. If you haven't already done so, make sure you head on over to iTunes as well to leave us your most gracious rating and review. It helps new listeners find us, which helps us grow. 
And of course, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.